The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Hello and welcome to Politics Theory Other. My name is Alex Doherty and today I'm joined by Phil Burton-Cartledge to discuss the resignations of David Davis and Boris Johnson, Brexit and the European Union and also the long-term decline of the Conservative Party. You can listen to the podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes and Acast and you can also follow on Facebook and Twitter. The handle is at Poll Theory Other and if you like the podcast please do consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. Uh, The podcast now has its own Patreon page, so if you're a fan of the show, any donations would be very much appreciated. You can find the Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. If the number of supporters reaches 200 people, I'll be starting a fortnightly bonus episode that will be available only to patrons. Phil Burton Cartledge is a lecturer in sociology at the University of Derby. He's currently researching the political crisis of the Conservative Party. He blogs regularly about politics at the blog All That Is Solid. The website address is a very public sociologist.blogspot.com. And you can also follow him on Twitter. He's at PhilBC3. So in recent days, we've seen the resignation of David Davis, the Brexit secretary, and Boris Johnson, the foreign secretary, uh, as well as some more junior figures in the government. Uh, Nonetheless, on Thursday, the government has promised to publish its white paper on its initial Brexit position for the subsequent negotiations. Given that it seems highly unlikely that the Brexiteers would be able to win a vote of no confidence in Theresa May, why do you think that Davis and Johnson chose this moment to quit the front bench? The interesting thing about David Davis is that, and I I really don't want to give him this credit, but I'm going to have to anyway, there are some principles there. I mean, he might have the wrong values, the wrong ideas, but these are nevertheless principles to which he holds dear. You'll remember that he resigned uh, from uh, the shadow cabinet then previously to contest a by-election on I believe it was detention without trial. And it was supposed to be a protest against the then Labour government. But he does have a a kind of a sense of his own values. And I think that with with Brexit, I think that his views on Brexit are heartfelt and real, even if I do disagree with them. And most, I imagine most listeners will disagree with them as well. And when he said that he could not be the man who fronts up the negotiations for something he doesn't believe in, I think that we should actually take him at his word. I think that we should believe him. Um, The thing with Boris Johnson, however, is that I do believe it was Max Hastings who said that this is a particularly dangerous individual because there is not one value, not one shred of principle that animates him. And the kind of the consensus seems to be from uh, various uh, uh, newspaper columnists, people that look at um, Westminster and watch it, is that Johnson resigned because he felt that David Davis was stealing a march on him. He knows that if Davis had resigned and he stayed in, then that kind of torpedoes his future leadership ambitions 
immediately. And the problem there, of course, is as far as Johnson is concerned, well, as far as I think that his ambitions are dead in the water anyway. Uh, but obviously he's trying to scramble and save his position. So I think that's what they've done. I think it's two different reasons. For Davis, it was a massive I might be giving a bit too much credit there, but that's what I think. And Johnson, it was entirely unprincipled and all about him. After all, he did argue for uh, the Prime Minister's position at the Chequers meeting after he did all his gesticulating that we saw on the cameras from a distance. Uh, regarding Johnson's resignation, uh, one scenario I've seen suggested is that he might potentially make a sort of insurgent move and, and, and try and go around the country um, trying to, to drum up support for, for opposition to, to this uh, a, a soft Brexit position of the government's. Um, and that that might be coupled with a revival of uh, of UKIP. Um, beyond hurting the the Tories in the polls, uh, how effective do you think that might be? And, and do you think that's a likely scenario? I mean, I don't believe that Johnson has the energy to go around the country, Jeremy Corbyn style, and do those kinds of meetings. Um, he is fundamentally a lazy chancer. Uh, but the thing is that if he goes around criticising his own government's policy and makes a, a big hullabaloo about it, then the, person, the, the people that will benefit the most from that will not be the Conservatives. He's just giving Conservative voters reasons to not vote for the Tories. Remember that as far as um, Tory voters are concerned as a bloc, that for them, Brexit has a kind of a cert- provides a certain ideological glue that sticks a load of them together as kind of um, married them to the to the Theresa May stroke Tory project. And Johnson going around there would just be kind of sticking a wedge between the two of them. As for you, I think, again, some of it depends on what Nigel Farage is going to do. He says that he's going to be making an announcement on Friday after the white paper has been published. But there's no reason why UKIP can't bounce back. I mean, there are in a in a, such a state at the moment but they're only in such a state because the people that animated them previously were won over by Theresa May on the promise of a hard Brexit now that she's going to give us a very soft Brexit by the looks of things um, where are those people going to go are they going to continue voting for Theresa May does their fear of Jeremy Corbyn trump that I don't think it does I think they will probably slip up start drifting away and back to UKIP if it becomes a viable option. Given the uh, the kind of soft Brexit the government is now proposing, uh, and given also that the EU is likely to put pressure on the government in the autumn to to bring uh, the UK uh, closer to a Norway-style agreement, um, it seems that the government would have to rely on the votes of opposition parties, uh, including the Labour Party, to get the deal through Parliament. Obviously, Labour will move to vote down the agreement in order to defeat the government, uh, and it's hard to imagine enough Labour MPs rebelling in order to support the government, especially considering that the Labour position is for for a softer Brexit than than the one the Conservatives are currently proposing, um, since Labour would at least keep Britain in the customs union. Uh, how do you think this is all likely to play out, and, and do you think this is just another example of, uh, of Theresa May kicking the can down the road in the hope that something will, uh, will turn up? She, she, she always does that. That's a kind of um, been the hallmark of her premiership uh, since the general election. I think the kind of scenario which you sketch out um, 
about trying to get a, her soft Brexit through the Commons. I think that she can rely on around 20 to 30 Labour MPs. I mean, we've already see, seen this. You've seen people like Jess Phillips. You've seen people like Mike Gapes um, talking about national government, talking about pe- praising or, you know, um, encouraging her to face down her Brexit rebels, this sort of thing. These aren't the, this isn't the mood music of a bunch of people that are about to oppose her um, her, her Brexit deal. Again, yeah, you're right. It depends on the arithmetic in the Commons. I would not be at all surprised, for instance, if the SNP, rather than vote against, decided to abstain. And that, of course, makes things slightly easier for May to get her stuff through. So I think that with the majority of um, the Parliamentary Conservative Party, with some Labour rebels, plus the Liberal Democrats, and with the SNP out of the equation, I think that is probably a a fairly likely scenario that will enable her to get this Brexit through. How do you think the um, European Union will respond to the white paper? Um, I mean, there were some some people have suggested, of of course, that the EU's primary aim is to block a Corbyn government, and so therefore it might uh, look more kindly on the the government's position than than we might expect. Uh, what's your view? Um, I don't think that is their their priority. As as far as Exxon, because they've got a lot on their plate at the moment, I think what they want is to get Brexit over and done with as quickly as possible. You know, Angela Merkel is still in the woods. She's still in trouble. Um, they've still got a refugee crisis afflicting uh, on the boards of the European Union. Of course, you've got the new Italian government playing at silly beggars. Um, you've got the rise of authoritarian populism um, in Hungary and in Poland. So there are a lot of challenges besetting the EU. And Brexit is something that I think a lot of them just see are exasperated by and see it as an unnecessary distraction. And one of the things that, one of the more interesting developments that came out today is um, with the British uh, Prime Minister, Leo Varadkar, arguing that perhaps the EU needs recognising that the UK has softened its stance somewhat, that perhaps the EU should soften its stance as well. So rather than kind of taking it to the wire, rather than kind of negotiating on on bits and bobs, rather than doing a wholesale rejection. I mean, we will know come Thursday, Friday, once uh, Michel Barnier's had a look at uh, the white paper. But yeah, I think what uh, Vragka was saying today is certainly something that Downing Street would find encouraging. It's interesting the point you make about the internal divisions within the European Union. Um, you know, as you say, we've got the situation in, in Italy with uh, the Lega and the Five Star Movement um, uh, going into uh, into government and uh, support for the EU in in Italy is now even lower than it is in the UK, um, and then we have the sort of authoritarian uh, government in Hungary uh, that, that you mentioned. I mean, I don't know if you would agree with this, but the the sort of hardcore Remainers. One thing that strikes me is that they seem uh, remarkably uninterested in the EU, despite their 
profound commitment to it. You know, there's a there's a lack of interest in in the internal politics of of the other member states, uh, a lack of interest in in how the institutions of the EU actually uh, function. Although I wouldn't say that goes for for, for all all. Um, of the hardcore remainers, it does seem to be true of a lot lot of them. It's you know this sort of oddly parochial form of of, of internationalism. Um, what's your view? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that has struck me by uh, the hard remain crowd or the the so called you know the alphabet soup of hashtags that you find on Twitter is a a and don't mean to insult some of your audience who might uh, fall into this category, but I'm going to insult them. Is there's a complete lack of critical thought here. I mean, for example, one of the things I find utterly exasperating is this this claim that if Labour were to come out as a as a you know reverse Brexit, um, that somehow this is going to win millions of extra votes. Firstly, where are these millions of extra votes going to come from? Secondly, what happens to the Labour leavers that came back to us? in 2017 do you think that they're going to take kindly to having their democratic decisions ignored no of course they're not going to and we could end up losing a lot of those people say up to a third of the labor vote for a generation and these tend to be older voters these are the older voters that we need to come out to turn out for labor in order to win a general election in terms of how the eu and the internal politics of the eu works again i think you're entirely correct there is no understanding on the of the institutions there's no understanding of the contradictions within the eu the faction fighting even there's not even any seemingly any understanding of any of the pretty awful things that the eu does such as policing the border in the mediterranean which has seen thousands of people die uh, the implementation of austerity in greece i mean on the whole you know I was someone that, um, that argued for a Remain vote, but that was, if you like, to use the old slogan, that was Remain without any illusions. It's understanding what the EU is, and the EU is is something that isn't, to use the old language, not a friend of the worker. As you've touched upon, the government's shift to something close to a, a sort of Brexit in name only um, that will arguably result in a, a reduction of, of sovereignty as compared with uh, just staying within the EU. Um, that's obviously excited the hardcore Remain crowd about the possibility of either withdrawing Article 50 and halting Brexit or, or the possibility of a second referendum on the final deal. Um, do, do, you think these, uh, do you think these scenarios are likely? No, I don't think we're going to see a referendum on another deal. And I don't think we're going to see Brexit stopped. And again, this is another infuriating thing I find amongst the hard remain crowd, this idea we can just simply exit from Brexit, to use the slogan. In 17.4 million people voted to leave. That is a plurality of, um, of the electorate. That's the majority of the people that decide to vote on referendum day. Now, all this stuff around, oh, it was an advisory referendum. Oh, not everyone turned out. It's a minority decision. Those are the rules. And the Remain campaign signed up to those rules to begin with. And to disregard a vote of that many people would have so incredibly profound consequences for the health of what is already a shaky democracy in this country. You know, at the moment, you just have to look at the the Leave people who feel like they're betrayed by the um, by the, the government stance but this is a passive betrayal i mean the way that they're reacting to it is quite passive and it's only affecting a relatively small number 
of leavers, those people who are hardcore, who define their politics by this in some way. That is a completely different kettle of fish from suddenly a government coming along saying, OK, thank you for all your votes. You know, 17.4, but we're just going to ignore it, set it aside because it's all it's all too hard. The consequences of doing so would place democracy in Britain in jeopardy. It would be more than a shot in the arm. It would put rocket boosters under the far right. Uh, you think UKIP were a problem, you know, it gives life to all the kind of, you know, all the most reactionary and backward elements in British society. And it gives them life because ultimately they have a point and their point will be, we voted and the elite, the liberal elite, as they'll style it, ignored our vote. And that would just be, you know, the consequences are too terrible to even consider. Obviously, uh, Jeremy Corbyn has come under a, a great deal of uh, criticism uh, from this uh, corner. Much of that criticism, I don't think, is particularly fair. But but the argument that uh, that Corbyn is ignoring the Labour membership, despite his uh, professed support for increasing uh, the membership's role in the formulation of policy, does seem to be a stronger argument, given that uh, the Labour membership are in in the main in support of uh, staying in the EU. Uh, what's what's your opinion on this uh, this argument? Well, he is, I suppose he is and he isn't, but they're not weighing the the issue. Remember, the EU, for example, the Brexit result weighs differently and is received differently on the whole by Conservative voters and Labour voters. For Conservative voters, the Leave result is a part of the glue that binds uh, the Conservatives' voter coalition together. As far as Labour voters and Labour members are concerned, yes, they wish that Remain had won. Some of them might um, define themselves in Remain-style terms. But as far as they're concerned, even though Brexit is an important issue, it's not the most important issue. The things that power Corbynism, the anti-austerity stuff, the breaking of the mould with establishment politics, the understanding of of what it's like to be a working-class person in Britain, all these things, all these central features of the Corbyn Trump everything around Remain and so on. And you can just see this. You just have to look at the polls since the the Brexit referendum, particularly since the general election last year. If Labour people were as motivated by the Remain cause as a lot of Remainers like to uh, argue, then that vote would have drifted away a long time ago and it would have dissipated itself amongst the Liberal Democrats and the Greens. But what do we see? The Liberal Democrats... I think they're up to 10% in the latest Surveysian poll. Um, look at the Greens, they're still 2 3%. They're not going anywhere. The, these, they're not being turbocharged by this. And so that's how, that's how I, I come to this. It's how I understand this, is that, as I say, the Brexit result is received differently and it's perceived differently and matters in a different way to Labour voters than it does to Conservative voters. On the Conservatives, um, you've been arguing for some time now that the Conservative Party has been in a state of long-term decline really since at least the early 1990s. Uh, Given that the Conservatives have won the last three general elections, uh, won an unprecedented share of the vote last time, although as as you point to, uh, there were very specific historical uh, reasons for that. Um, And given that they are even now ahead in the opinion polls, um, a, a lot of people would find that a questionable claim to make. Could you explain 
explain why you think the Conservatives are in so much trouble. It's about, it's, it's what we call, what we used to call in Marxist circles, the law of tendency. Because every organisation, every um, group of people, every class, every institution has a certain momentum to it, has a certain tendency. They tend to evolve and develop in certain directions. And with the Conservative Party, if you look at them from their, their peak in 1951, they have, over time, again, there's been peaks and troughs within the trend, but they have generally won with fewer numbers of votes over time with fewer number of MPs. But also you have to look at the the membership of the Conservative Party as well. Now, this is something that kind of floats under the radar of Westminster because Westminster is not interested in members. They're only interested in bums on seats in the House of Commons. But the Conservative Party at one point was formally bigger than the Labour Party. It had around two and a half million members. How many members has it got today? It's got depending on who you listen to, anywhere between 70,000 and 130,000. That is a massive decline over over the course of 60 years. Now, if you look at the period beginning from with Margaret Thatcher from the late 1970s to the point she left in 1990, in, in 1990, sorry, uh, the membership halved. And that decline has continued ever since, regardless of who's been at the helm of the Conservative Party. Now, this is what I mean by the Tories being in long, long-term decline, because if they haven't got members, that means that they are not articulating very well the interests of large numbers of constituencies, large numbers of people out there in the country. Parties ultimately are, to use Engels's phrase, they're fractions of classes. They are memberships, at least in the political science literature, talks about linkage and the role of the political party is to link the the leaders of a political party to their constituency base As you can see with the labor party and its mushrooming of members over the last uh, three years you can see that that linkage is alive and well but if you look at the those members have withered on the vine which means it's becoming more if you like more autonomous from its base so for example you had uh, Boris Johnson, who recently uh, said something nasty about business, for instance. Um, I won't repeat it here because, you know, this is a family podcast. And so that was a symptom of this decline. Now, some people say, oh, this doesn't really matter because they've got they've got their donors and they can listen to their donors and their donors will turn up at their uh, their, you know, their posh lunches and will bend the ears of the prime minister and bend the ears of senior Tories and so on. But as we've seen over the last two years and the, the alarms that have been sounded by a large number of large businesses who have manufacturing interests and supply chains that stretch across Britain and the near continent, that this message hasn't seems not to have been sinking in or it's been ignored. And it's all symptomatic of the same crisis that the Conservative Party are in. Also, in terms of their decline as well, from a voting point of view, is you just have to look at the people who are voting for Conservative. They tend to be older voters. Now, older voters are, are more likely to turn out, but the problem for them, or the problem for the Conservative Party, is that whereas it used to be the case that people used to grow more Conservative as they got older and their vote would, would follow that, 
now that process has completely broken down because the conservatizing effects of old age were always dependent on property. And what have we seen over the course of the last 15, 20 years? We've seen people finding it increasingly to get on the housing ladder. We've seen a spread of precarious working. We've seen um, people not feeling secure in, in, in their jobs, finding it hard to, to plan an income. So if you're not acquiring property, you're not creating masses of new conservative voters. And so this is a problem that they've got to face. And however you look at it, the Conservatives are not addressing it. The, you know, the idea of building too many houses, well, they can't do that because that will disadvantage their, uh, their key demographics already, the people who are landlords, the people who own their own home and use it as a, and rely on high, rising house prices for a, a little nest egg. So they're really caught in a bind and given a choice between say, doing something radical for young people and alienating some of their core voters, choose to stick with their core voters every time. This is what I mean by, or some of the aspects of what I mean by the Conservative Party being in long-term decline. In relation to this, in, in a recent blog post, you made a very interesting argument regarding the uh, the decomposition of the Conservative Party at the base. Um we usually think of social atomization and, and the decline of collectivity as being a disaster for the left, uh, for the labour movement, and especially for the unions. But you argue that the the effects of the, the neoliberal revolution that the Conservatives set in train has also rebounded pretty disastrously for the Conservatives too. Could you explain what you were getting at with this argument? Yes, sure. I mean, there's, there's, there's a couple of ways in which you can think about it. Um, firstly, when the, the whirlwind of Thatcherism ran through British working class communities in the 1980s, it wasn't just the old solidarity of the working class that were affected. Now, someone like Thatcher's dad, for instance, you know, he was a, a grocer who owned two shops. Now, if you are a grocer in, say, some of the mining villages, then and you're in common contact with miners every day and all of a sudden, bang, the pit has gone. What happens to your business? It folds. So hundreds of thousands of small business people, just like Thatcher's dad, was ruined by her, were ruined by her revolution. Um, would they take kindly to that? Would they continue voting for Conservative? It's, it's not very likely. In the second place as well, because of the, the attack on manufacturing, the, the pulling apart the old supply lines of the post-war consensus, that destroyed billions of pounds worth of, of manufacturing capital. Many manufacturing businesses went to the wall as well. These aren't labour supporters. These would have been, in the main, like most business people, tend towards the Conservatives. And then you have the cultural change within the Conservative Party itself. Now, to kind of just go a little bit into, into the history, one of the things that the Conservatives did with uh, the extension of the franchise to first to working men, then women uh, over a certain age, and then to all women from the late 20s onwards, was it wasn't just the Labour Party that went out and organised working class people politically. The Tories did the same sort of thing as well. You go a lot around the country, you will find some existing and former Tory association drinking dens. Who do you suppose 
went to these these places it wasn't you know the landed gentry or anything like that this was layers of working class people and in a recent paper in a in a I say a recent paper in a book that was published in 2002 called Mass Conservatism. One of the things that this talks about, it talks about how in the 1920s, conservative activists used to drive around um, rural areas with kind of cinema vans and they used to broadcast conservative party propaganda in the village square and and so on. This would be a spectacle that, you know, hundreds, thousands of people would go along and see, and that would socialise them into conservative values. They would identify themselves with the Conservative Party because they were effectively the only party that was bothering to speak to them. And if you look in middle-class circles as well, amongst Tory party activists, particularly amongst female Tory party activists, again, these were mostly fairly well-heeled people, they used to combine their political commitments with charitable work so stuff like the rotary club for instance or other kind of philanthropic and paternalistic ventures this is how they would solidify their activist base this is how they would meet other do-gooder types and then bring them into into the party fold also for some people that were on the receiving end of this charity they would be grateful for it and identify themselves thereon therein from with the conservative party and all this broke down during the Thatcher years. So when if you've got a party that's promoting dog eat dog, boots, you know, tie your up your own bootstraps, you're on your own son, that isn't the kind of party culture that is going to encourage people to get involved in charitable work, to look after people that are less fortunate than themselves. The kind of the old Tory paternalism, if you like, which Thatcher rudely shoved aside was in many respects a a key taproot for their success in the post-war period and kept them as a mass organisation. Unsurprisingly, once you took that away, and once you rip out that culture, the whole organisation starts withering on the vine. So do these do these trends that you're describing do, do these rule out the possibility of a conservative revival? Can we can we forget about them as a as an electoral force in the future? No, I'm not necessarily saying that. Uh, they because as we know, the Conservatives always have a capacity for reinvention. And I do think it would be extremely difficult for the Tories to do so. I think under, especially if the boundary review goes through, which is still up in the air at the moment, is the Conservatives still can win another election. They could probably win an election after that as well. We should never count them out. But time isn't on their side. And the longer they... they continue um if you like catering to their older electorate at the expense of the younger electorate that will work its way through eventually demographics aren't necessarily destiny but at the same time you can't ignore them indefinitely either so for the in, in the case of the long-term health of the party they've got to really sit down and think about how do they speak to people of my generation in the you know in the under 50s um age group people who are in the middle of their working lives having to got kids just about managed to get on the housing ladder thinking about retirement and saving for retirement and those things how are they going to win those people over let alone the young when in the 2017 general election both of those groups swung massively behind uh, the Labour Party. 
unless they've got some key ideas, some radical ideas, and also unless they dump their whole kind of nasty party image, I can't see how they can they can ever win a majority in the long term again. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. If you enjoy the podcast, please do consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. You can also follow on Facebook and Twitter. The handle is at Poll Theory Other. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.